0: Let's begin with prayer. So Father, we need that song to express the prayers of our hearts because our hearts stray, our eyes wander. We distract, we chase, we run. And so it is our prayer in this moment, and for every moment, bind us back, center our lives on the name that is given above every name. Center our lives on the name, the only name given among men by which we must be saved. Center our life on this name that's above every name, at the name that every knee will bow before and every tongue will confess that you are, Lord, to the glory of God the Father, God. We want want our lives centered on that. But in moments like this, we have to confess. Our lives don't center on that. So often, Father, they don't center on the name of Jesus They center on our ball games and they center on our accomplishments and they center on the stuff we can buy and they center on the work that we can do. They center on our own religious activities. And so, Father, draw us back. Center us on Jesus above everything. His beauty above every beauty. His power above every power. Father, we ask for that. And we know that only you can give that. And so by your spirit, make it true. Not just true inside of us, but true in how we actually live. We pray for it in that precious name. Amen. So, Amy and I have been married about 18 years. Coming up on 18 years. I can get it wrong. She's she's in nursery today, so I can get it slightly off. And we've moved seven times over 18 years. So every time we move, there's a process, right? You go into the attic where you've stored junk for the last, in our case, two to two and a half years is about all we last in a house. And so you go up there and see all the junk you've stored up there and all the junk you've accumulated. You pull it down and you try to throw about half of it away, right? Have you done that? Okay, and so we purge and we declutter and we purge and we declutter. And there's this amazing thing that happens. Two and a half years later when it happens and hopefully longer, the attic's full of junk again. And you've got to pull it down, and you've got to declutter, and you've got to purge, and out with the old, and let's start over again. Maybe you've done that. If you haven't moved lately, or if you're, you know, graduating college and moving, you're going to find this is true. Declutter, out with the old. Isn't that what happens in our spiritual life, too, though? That all that junk of the old man that was done away with in salvation starts to accumulate again. And there it is. We've got to go back into the closet of our heart, and we've got to start pulling out the old and throwing it away, and decluttering, and freeing up space for Christ to be the center again. And so I want to encourage you to take the time, not when too much has passed and there's a lot of baggage, you don't know how you're going to go through it. I want you to take the time regularly. Take the time today. What's the stuff that's accumulated in my heart? What's that old nature stuff that's come back in and gunking up my spiritual life that just needs to be gone? Because that's what the text is talking about today. That's what the text is focused on today. You're a brand new person. You've got a brand new house. It's clean and it's clear and it's righteous and it's holy. Now go live like it. Now go make it true in reality, true in experience, because it is true in God's sight. And so let's look at Colossians 3, 5 through 11, then we'll catch a little bit up on context, and then we'll jump into the the message. So verse 5, put to death, therefore And you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. But Christ is all and in all. And so we've been walking through Colossians and Paul gave the answer to every question he's about to face. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is the sovereign creator of the universe. Jesus holds the molecules of the world together simply by his own power. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus has redeemed. Jesus has reconciled. Now let's talk about what your false teachers are offering again. It's empty. It's deceptive. It's hollow. It doesn't offer anything. They say, here is growth. Here is life. Here is fullness. And he says, no. Jesus is life. And Jesus is fullness. And Jesus is growth. And everything focuses back on him. And then we transition, as he says, the, the, the way they're going has no power to help you change. It has no power over your flesh. But, in the first part of chapter 3, he then switches back to this positive new identity we have in Christ you are in Christ. You are raised with Christ. You are alive in Christ. You are dead to the old way of being. You are alive in Jesus forever. And your life is up there in heaven and you're to focus your affections on heaven where the rule of Christ is. And you're to focus your mindset and your life orientation around heaven where the rule of Christ is. And how do you bring that into the reality of earth and into the reality of experience? And if we get this wrong, if we don't go from start to finish and we get this wrong All I'm saying today is simply moralism. Be better, do good, quit being bad, and quit doing bad stuff. And there is zero power in me saying that. There is no power in me saying, if you'll just quit doing bad stuff, life will be better. It's true. But you'll never be able to do it. And so you have to get the order right. You are a new creation in Christ. You have a new identity. You are holy. You are righteous. You are loved. Which produces a new life orientation, new affections, new desires... Which leads to our verses today, which leads to a new set of lifestyles, a new set of practices, a new way of living life. And that's what he's talking about today. Is he talks about, in this section, the negative stuff that belongs to the old life, to the, to the you that is not you anymore, that's to be put away. And then next week and the next several weeks, it's going to be here. Then now the positive, the life-giving, the raised-with-Christ qualities that are to be added into your life, that are true of your life, that need to come out in how you live. And so I'm going to quote um, Jeff Vanderstelt on this one. God always makes us something before he commands anything. God always makes us something before he commands us to do anything. In Sunday school last week, we were studying um, Gideon. And God comes up to Gideon, and he says, and, and by the way, Gideon's hiding in this wine press, beating out flour, because he's terrified the Midianites will come and take what he has. And so God comes to him, and you know what He says, Get in, you mighty man of war, hiding in a wine vat terrified. God spoke over him who he is. You are a mighty man of war, even though you've never fought for anything. You're a mighty man of war, even though you're absolutely terrified right now, because God has spoken a new identity over him, that he is going to then live out in his practice, and he has the 300 men, and God fights for him, end of the story. And in our salvation, right, God gives us a new identity. You are in Christ. Now here, this is what that looks like. This is what it looks like to be a new creation. Here's how a new creation lives. So now go live who you are. He makes us something before he tells us to do anything. And that making us something empowers us to do what he says. All right, and so here we go. We are new, so let's put away the old ways of life. Colossians 3, 5 through 11. We are new, so put away the old ways. Ways of life. First thing he says about that, put away selfish desires that invite God's anger. Instead, pursue purity. Put away the selfish desires that invite God's anger and instead pursue purity. And we talk about it a lot. We are desire-driven people. We are driven by our loves. We are driven by our passions. We are driven by our desires. And so the great fight of the Christian life is which set of desires will control us, which set of desires will we feed and fuel and will flame up in our lives. And so there's a whole set of desires that go with your old nature, and all of us have them. There's a whole set of desires that go that are part of the human nature, as in fallen and sinful, and we all have them. They take different flavors than you, and I have different flavors than you, but we've all got them. Whether we have these burning desires to shop, which I have no desire for whatsoever, but some of you do. Man, I can't wait. I've got to get to the store. There's a sale. This desire that compels you to own stuff and buy stuff and have stuff. We have this desire for materialism. We have this desire for new cars. Blair walked out, right? Okay. We have this desire for cars, like i got to trade out my car. It's starting to get a little old now. We have this desire for organic or natural. We have this desire for exercise. We have this desire for the approval of the people around us. We we are consumed with our desires, and that stuff belongs with the old man. It's to be put away. And this new set of desires, instead of the desires that we feed in our hearts and the desires that are meant to consume us, and it's the desire for God and His glory and His joy and His kingdom, and when those desires consume us, this whole, set of li- this whole change of life comes as we're controlled by different desires. And so Christ comes into our desires and he captures us. He captures us with his beauty and he captures us with his glory and he sets us about a whole different pursuit of life. And so as we look at these verses, we are looking at the desires that belong to who you were but not who you are now. We're looking at the desires that God says, that's not you anymore, even if you do them, even if you're living in the middle of this, right in this moment, even if you did it before you got to church this morning, that's not you. You're in Christ. You're righteous. You're holy. You're loved. Now go live like one who is loved. Go live like one who is righteous. Go live like one who is holy. So let's look at the text. And it begins with a therefore... Which means we look backwards and we see what has just happened. and so chapter two ends, the flesh or the, uh, the legalism and the, the rules and all the stuff they have, it has no power to change who you are. But, verses one through three, you have a new identity in Christ. You are raised with Christ. You're to set your mind on the things above, you're set your affections, your heart on the things above. Therefore, based on that, put to death what is earthly among you. Now, the word put to death is the first command. There's three commands in this text. Just to go through a brief orientation of it, there's command one, put it to death, and it deals with a lot of our internal desires, but especially sexual desires um, or depraved desires. And then there's a, it has five sins attached to it. Then there's command two. You've got to put them all away, and it's got a group of social sins mainly centering on anger. And then there's command three, and that's quit lying to each other because community and trust can't be built if we're lying to each other all the time. And then there is, there's a bunch of artificial distinctions you put up with each other and I put up with each other. But Christ is everything, and if Christ is everything, all these other, these other barriers melt away out of our lives. So that's kind of the structure of the text, and this is looking at that, first, that desire-driven command. You've got to put to death. Now, think about this. What are the false teachers offering? They're saying, look, if you follow us, fullness will come. If you follow us, if you follow our ways, you will grow spiritually. You will be full. And that's not true. It has no power. And so what Paul says is now that you're new in Christ, there is power to actually kill the stuff that's killing you. There's power to actually kill the stuff that's destroying your relationships with each other. There's power to kill the stuff that is bringing you into destruction and division and chaos. And it can be broken free of. You can put it to death because Christ put it to death. You're you're dead with him. And so since that's true, you now are empowered to live with that stuff being dead and life coming instead. And so put to death what is earthly among you. Put to death that earthy flesh stuff that's part of your life. Put to death... What's earthly, and the word is in your members, which points us back to Romans 6, which we quote for our baptism passage so often. At the end of it, you've been buried with Christ in baptism. You've been raised to walk in the newness of life. And that's all happened. Therefore, he says, do not present your members, your physical physical body as weapons for unrighteousness to sin, but instead present your members to God for righteousness. And so that's what he's saying here is, Put to death your members, your physical body. Put to death. Don't offer it to death anymore. Don't offer it to sin anymore for its purposes. Offer it to God. And so put to death what is earthly. Put to death these members. But the funny thing is, is the group of sins, he's about to list, has very little to do with our bodies. There's one of the five sins has to do with our physical actions. So why is that? And what I would say is, why that is, is because our bodies are the means that our desires come into the world and come into experience and come into reality. And so our desires always find a way to express themselves. And how do our desires express themselves? With our bodies, with our credit card swipe, with what we look at on the internet, with what we look at and desire. So our desires come out through our bodies, and that's why he's saying put to death your body. Put to death those instruments that sin is using to fulfill its desires. And then he goes into a list, and it is primarily a sexual list. And so each of these words, except for the last one, generally focuses in on sexuality and sexual desires and, and sinful sexual behavior. But I don't think necessarily it has to stay there because... The root sin here is a desire. It's a lust. It's a depraved passion. It's when we yearn for something, desire something else. In this case, it's sexual. And so he says, put to death sexual immorality. Now, sexual immorality is the umbrella term for sexual sin. And yes, I'm old-fashioned because I believe what God says. That he created a male and he created a female and he brought them together in marriage. And part of expressing the one flesh of marriage is that they enter into a sexual union with each other and it's beautiful and it's precious and it's a good gift of God for the covenant. Believe that. And so anything outside of one man and one woman in covenant union with each other through this thing called marriage, expressed in physical intimacy, anything other than that is sin and it's called sexual immorality. And this is the umbrella term for that. If we engage in sexual activity in any form you can think of, and our world has thought of a lot of them, And our world throws a lot of them right out here at us and tells us to embrace it. But if there's any form of this stuff, it fits under this term, sexual immorality. And then he goes from sexual immorality to uncleanness or defilement. And it's the defilement that comes from sexual sin. And then the last two words mirror each other. They're they're almost identical, but they're heightened forms of each other. And so... All these different translations that I've looked in. Let me make sure I read it and read it the right way, that the way it's going to show up in your sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire. And so passion is is the word for lust. It's a depraved desire. Now, passion does not have to be sinful. It just generally is. It's when we desire, burn, yearn for something that's other than God. It's this depraved lust. And so... Lust is this desire for something that we ought not have. It's a desire for something that is not right. And here's the thing for the second word. We start playing with our lusts, don't we, and we feed them. And when we feed our lusts long enough, guess what they do? They own us. And that's that's that next word, evil desire. They become controlling habitual lusts. And so no longer do we just lust, we lust in a way that controls us and is habitual and owns us and we can't break free of it anymore. And our world wants to call that addiction like it's a disease. That is a lie. It is a condition where you played with sin long enough for sin to own you. And now that it owns you, you want to say it's something out there, some disease out there. It's not. It's a disease in here and that's good news for you. Because guess what Jesus did? He didn't come to necessarily fix the diseases out there in the world, although that's part of the gospel. He came to fix the disease inside of us. He became to be that sin on the cross for us. He became to kill that sin on the cross for us so that there is power to overcome what the world says there's no power to overcome. And I don't have to live my whole life, oh, I just hope I make it through today and I hope I don't lust again today or I hope I don't drink again today or I hope I don't do drugs again today. I don't have to live that way anymore. It doesn't own me. It doesn't control me. Jesus took it. Jesus killed it. And now he offers me this new identity. And yes, I may struggle. And yes, I may fall. But it doesn't own me anymore. Our lust can't own us. And so put that stuff away. And then he's got one more on the list, and it almost seems odd, right? Covetousness, which is idolatry. I found a great definition for covetousness. It's when we place our supreme treasure on something we don't possess or we place our supreme treasure on something that belongs to someone else and that makes it makes it a little easier for us to see why it's idolatry doesn't it it's when something besides jesus takes the supreme value and treasure of our life and instead it gets up there in its place and i just think man that car i gotta have it that stuff at the mall, I gotta have it, and I can't be satisfied without it, and life will be good with it. In essence, what I'm saying is, that's my God. That thing that's on sale is my God. That purse, it's my God. That gun, it's my God. Covetousness, which is idolatry. We have been captured by a treasure that's not Jesus. And now it makes sense why covetousness and the desire based sexual sins come together because at their root they are desiring and treasuring and prizing something besides Jesus. And it's not a treasure that comes from knowing Jesus, it's a treasure that has replaced Jesus. It's at the root the same thing. So put all this stuff away. And it gives us a couple of reasons because on this stuff, the wrath of God is coming. And that's New Testament. Right? That's, I mean, let me make sure, right? Because that's Colossians and the Old Testament. It ends way back in here somewhere. So that's not the mean old God of the Old Testament if you dare to believe such a thing. That's the New Testament. The wrath of God falls on this lifestyle, on this set of behaviors. And it doesn't do me any good to pretend like that's not true, or it doesn't happen, or God's all love. You can pretend it all you want, but God is who God says he is. He's not who we want him to be. We don't get to make him up in our image. We get to say, God, who are you? And then we get to read his revelation. And so when he says his anger falls on this kind of lifestyle, I think he means it. And I don't think we need to explain it away, because there is a loving God who is also holy. There is a God who will pour grace over us for every sin. On to his son, the consequences of it, who is also one who will execute perfect justice. And here's the amazing thing. Here's why this should stun our hearts. You and I are his enemies. You and I deserve the wrath he's talking about here. And instead of a king who has been rebelled against coming with his army that could crush us with a breath, instead of him crushing us, he adopts us. And we become his children. Why would we live in fear of a God whose wrath is paid for by grace instead of paid for by destroying? Yes, it will destroy one day apart from Christ. But in Christ, this God of anger that everybody wants to be repulsed by is the God who offers grace to adopt instead. Put away your selfish desires to invite God's anger. Pursue purity. I've got a few reasons why purity matters. I'm going to go through them real quickly. There's a bunch more. First, the Trinity. The Trinity. One God, perfectly united, perfectly in covenant with each other for all eternity. Three distinct persons. Marriage, two distinct persons, different, together in union, together in covenant. And then that is the place where the one flesh physical union can take place. We picture the diversity and unity of the Trinity in our relationships of marriage. Also Christ in the church. Jesus is a faithful husband who does not run around. Jesus is a faithful husband who does not have impure thoughts about his bride. Jesus is a faithful husband who washes with water of the word. And the relationship between Jesus and the church is the relationship between husband and wife. And we lie against the faithfulness of Jesus when we are impure before marriage or after marriage. We lie against the faithfulness of our, of our groom, of our husband, Jesus. Our union with Jesus is another reason. You have been joined to Jesus. Your members belong to Jesus. Jesus inhabits your members. First Corinthians 6, towards the end. Since that's true, when you go lay down in bed with somebody that's not in covenant relationship with you, you're taking the members of Jesus and joining them in what the Bible says, a one flesh relationship with, in sexual sin. And then right after that, he says, do not, do you not know your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? I'm going to go lie in a bed that's defiled with sin as a temple, a holy dwelling place of God in the Spirit. I'm going to go put the temple of God in the middle of a bed of sin. It just doesn't work. And so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of them are involved in what should be a passionate pursuit for purity. And all of them are drug into when we take the path of sin in its place. There's more. But I'll stop. Put away sins that destroy community. Instead, pursue unity. Put away the sins that destroy community and instead pursue unity. As people, we are selfish. We want our way. We want our way from our wives. We want our way from our husbands. We want our way from our kids. We want our way from the people in church with us. And we will do anything to get our way. We'll manipulate. We'll lie. We'll cold shoulder. We'll yell. We'll pitch a fit. We'll, we'll um, withdraw in silence. We'll stew. We'll clam up. We'll blow up. We'll do all these things. And we destroy our marriages in the process. And we destroy our kids in the process. And we destroy the community, this radical new oneness that Jesus died to create in his church. We destroy it because we're selfish and we manipulate. But then Jesus comes with this radical salvation that doesn't just save us personally, it saves us into a corporate body, this church, this family. And when we sin, in ways that destroy community, we destroy the family he's weaving together. And it's a whole lot different when I think of you as family and how I'm going to choose to treat you. It's a whole lot different when I think of you as family and whether or not I'm going to take steps that destroy us as a family for my selfish desires or I don't like something or it's not the right color or they should have done this or they should have asked me. When it's family that I'm destroying, I'm going to think a lot differently about it than I am if it's just a group of people I hang out with a few hours a week. Put away sins that destroy community. And so here's how you once lived, it says, but now, currently, new life, here's how you are to live instead. Put them away. And then he goes into this set of sins that is more social in nature. Anger in all its many forms, right? There's hot anger that blows up. We call that wrath. So wrath is the outburst of anger. It's the explosive, explosive expression of anger. And then there's malice. That's the internal stewing of anger. It's ill will. I just think inside of myself about the bad things that could happen to you or how I don't like you or how much revenge I'd like to have on you and I just stew on it. That's malice. And slander is when I go to other people besides you and I start tearing you down. I start tearing down your reputation. I start criticizing you. I start gossiping about you. I'm slandering you. And you can see how every one of those would destroy our ability to live as family. They destroy your ability to live as husband and wife in unity and intimacy. They destroy our ability to parents our kids well when we burn the forest of our lives with anger or harbor in our hearts bitterness and grudges of anger. And it's sin. And sin always destroys. It destroys your life. It destroys your marriage. It destroys the church. It destroys the witness of the glory of Christ to a world that's watching Sin has no power to do anything in your life but destroy you and to destroy the ones around you. So put them away. Put them away because they destroy what Jesus died to create among people. Put them away because they destroy the testimony of Jesus in your relationships. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. And again, that seems odd, it gets its own command. Like, why in the world did he step out of these lists and say, don't lie to each other, by the way? Is it because of the false teachers and their deception? Maybe. Is it because it's so prevalent in the human condition to lie? Maybe. Here's why I think it is. It's because the fabric of community is woven through with this thing called trust. Trust is its strongest thread that keeps it together we can trust each other and if we have a falling out if we still trust each other we can get it back and so when we lie to, to, to each other we destroy that we pull out that contain that, that fabric of trust and we unweave the garment of unity that, that we've been creating we can't trust each other if we can't trust each other for the truth so don't lie to each other because if you lie to each other you'll destroy the fabric of the community that i'm weaving together. And then I want you to notice, if we get nothing else, notice the next statement, seeing that you have put off the old man with his practices. And you put on the new man who's being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Every once in a while, I get to give English lessons. And you would find that really funny if you sat through high school and college English with me. The only C I ever got in college was English. So you can take what I'm about to tell you with with that kind of grain of salt, and we can go from there. So, have put off is in what is called the past tense. Meaning it happened before now. It's finished before now. So, you have put off the old man. It means in the past, the old man with all this stuff we're talking about, he's gone. It, it's the terminology of like clothes. You know, you, you've, you've totally ruined your clothes. You've got paint and oil stains and tears and smudges all over them. And you have put those off. They're gone. And then Jesus comes and offers you these perfect, white, gleaming robes of righteousness. And he puts them on us. And so that happened. That's true. You are not who you once were, no matter how you're living and how you're blowing it today and how you're messing up. You still aren't who you used to be. You're who Jesus says you are. And you know how I know that? Because the next next part says it, doesn't it? You have put on the new man who's being renewed after the image of its creator. You are not who you were, but you don't know what I did today. You're not who you were, but you don't know how I lived last night, but you're not who you were. You are righteous. You are holy. You are loved. And there is nothing, if you're in Christ, there is nothing that can ever, ever, ever stain or change that truth and reality in your life. Because in the past, you put off the old man. In the past, you put on the new man. And nothing can undo that. Nothing can change that. And so now all it is is how how does God work in me by the Spirit to, to live out that new reality and to live out that new identity and to live out that new man that he's made me to be who is being renewed over and over again into the image of Christ. The last step, we'll hit it very quickly put away artificial human distinctions. Instead, be consumed with Christ. So we have these internal desire-based sins that that desire what we should not desire and are consumed with what we should not be consumed with. And then we have these social sins that destroy our ability to be in community with each other. And then we put up these artificial barriers between us. I'm going to say it as straight as I know how to myself and you at the same time. If racism resides in your heart, it is sin, and you must repent. It is sin that God hates, and you have to repent of it. If you have in your heart ethnocentric ideas, meaning we are in our culture as Americans, the end-all be-all of humanity, it's sin, and we must repent. And if you dare to look at people above you economically and let them belittle you, or if you dare to look at people above you in envy of them and their class and their status, it's sin. And we must repent. We should not. I mean, think about our culture. We've got political platforms built on class envy. And we don't show them a better way. We've got political systems where people get power and they get money by keeping the races separate and mad at each other. And they gain their power and influence among us by doing that. And it's sin, it's horrible sin, because you think about God, the creator, who in wonderful diversity created mankind, totally unique, down to fingerprints, that every single one of them is different, and every look, and every color, and every race, and every... Every ethnicity and he created them this wonderful beauty and they're designed to be different to show the diversity and the beauty of God the creator And we use it to tear each other apart And the worst part of it is not that our politicians do it The worst part of it is that our churches do it And instead of being churches filled with the diversity of God's creative beauty Holding hands, bowing before the throne of King Jesus, we segregate, we divide, we harbor in our hearts feelings against other people that are different than us. And instead of instead of joining the culture wars that we have joined, why don't we just sit down at the table of Jesus and invite people to the peace of his table? The piece of this new blood that supersedes our blood of ethnicity and our blood of race and our blood of class and our blood of money or no money. Just sit down at the table of Jesus and take of a body that was broken. And take of a blood that unites into a new covenant, a better covenant and a better family. The world can hate our God and hate our Jesus, but if we are locked arms across races and locked arms across classes and locked arms across across ethnicities, worshiping together, they cannot deny our Jesus. They can hate him and they can reject him, but they cannot deny him because they can't do that. We can as part of our new man, will we? Look at it. There's ethnic distinctions in here, Jew and Gentile. There's religious distinctions here, circumcised and uncircumcised. There's cultural distinctions, barbarian and Scythian. There are economic distinctions, slave and free. And just think how that applies. You could just stamp that exact same expression onto our world today, couldn't you? Let's chop them up by race and we can get power. Let's chop them up by gender and we can get power. Let's chop them up by social class so we can make them envy each other. And they'll never love each other if they envy each other. So we can get power. It's time for the church to unite around the table of Jesus and show a different way. Isn't that what it says? Because Christ is all and he's in all. Christ is to be the total preoccupation of his people. Christ is to be the total preoccupation of his church. And if Christ consumes us, then every other barrier besides Christ melts down and bows before him. Because there's no longer these distinctions to keep us apart. Those are dead in Jesus. There's only this new blood coursing through new veins that unite us into a new family. Christ is all. Be consumed with Christ. He's in all. I look and the only distinction between me and another human being is are they in Christ or are they not? And I don't hate them if they're not. I don't hate them. Even if they are terrorists, they're not in Jesus. I don't hate them because of that. I yearn for the gospel to get to them so that the war that they are fighting for, a dead God who cannot deliver, hoping that they will be delivered one day apart from the torment that they're going to, they would be delivered from and they would meet Jesus and they would become my brother and they would become my sister. Christ is everything. Christ is in all. Christ is all. Let's talk about a couple of practical things as we close down. Identify and attack your idols. Identify and attack your idols. If you're living in North America, and I kind of trust that you are, it'd be a long commute if you didn't. One of your idols is most likely your family, it's just part of how we've wired the fabric. And it makes sense to some degree because it's a good gift of God, this thing called family. And it pictures God, this thing called family. And so it's real easy for it to become God instead of God. So I just encourage you to look at it. Has my family become my idol? Is that why I spend so much time and so much money on their grades and so much time and so much money on their sports and so much time and so much money on their popularity and so much of my mental energy and my my rising and falling of life hinges on how well they're doing or if they're obeying the right way or if they're doing the right stuff? Is that why? Possibly. What gets our money and our desires and our time and our conversation generally is pointing us to something that may have taken a place it shouldn't. And I'm going to say it has, but you need to look. Maybe your job, you get your worth out of what you do. You get your worth out of how well you do it. You get your worth out of how much money it earns for you. And this good thing called work that God has given us, before the fall, not after, has become our God. Just encourage you to look. Identify your idols. Is it stuff? Is it materialism? Man, I just got to have some more stuff. Identify them. And then go to war because of a new identity. Go to a war because of a new mindset that's set on the rule of Christ breaking into earth as opposed to an old mentality. Go to war with a new set of behaviors that puts this stuff away because we're going to talk about the stuff you put in its place next week. Second, pursue genuine community. One of our mission statement values for every disciple who's going to make other disciples is that they have genuine relationships of growth and change. We're going to challenge you to that until you just can't stand hearing it anymore because it matters. God ordained that people being together around the word and prayer is how he changes us. But if we don't walk past the things that are keeping us apart, and if we don't walk past the confines of our own life, we'll never be all God designed us to be. And we'll never make the impact beyond these walls we're designed to make either. So pursue genuine community. Let me tell you how complicated this is. You probably know each other, so you don't have to introduce. Hey, I'm Chris. You want to go to lunch today? Just see what God does. Hey, I'm Chris. You want to go to lunch? Sure. Man, have you been reading Ephesians? I've been reading Ephesians, and here's what God's been challenging me with. Wow, that was pretty hard, wasn't it? No, it's not. It's not made to be complicated. Pursue community in just little practical ways and let God do the knitting, and it may not be that person. It may be the next person you invite to lunch. It may be the family you have over for dinner, but you just begin weaving into the rhythms of your life, people and the word and prayer, and then you let God knit what he wants to knit. Last one, tear down the barriers in your heart. Here's the reality of the human condition. We are all pre-wired in our fallen flesh to look at people different than us with suspicion, to think more highly of ourself and our class or our tribe of people than we do of other people. And so the question is, where is that in your heart? Because it's there, it's it's there. How can I go find that stuff and begin to pull it out and crucify it and let the blood of Jesus melt it? So I would encourage you to go look for it. Shocking when you find it, right? Like, I'm not supposed to have that there. I don't want that there. There it is. Okay, there's a cross. It's time to declutter that old junk that accumulates in our life and put Christ in its place. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we bow. We bow across every race. We bow across every class. We bow across every ethnicity before the Lord of all the earth, the creator of every distinct face and feature and fingerprint that has ever existed. We bow before you, God. And we choose to value your creative diversity and the beauty of a creation that is so distinct and not let it divide us anymore. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would move among us to release us and set us free. I pray your spirit would move among us. God, if there are those who don't know Jesus and think they do or those that don't know Jesus and they know they don't know Jesus, Father, open their eyes, unblind their hearts, show them Jesus. Save, Father. In this moment, save. And Father, set us free from this junk that's in our lives. It's there. God, set us free. Set us free from the lusts and the desires and the materialism. Set us free from the things that are destroying our relationships and destroying our marriages and destroying our genuine sense of community. God, set us free. That's what Jesus does is he sets us free. It's in his name we pray. Amen.